uh, you know, one of the biggest eye-opening moments is around the intentionality and also just the brilliance of young people to use emoji, to use the features um, afforded to them on social media platforms to tell stories. And so a part of the, the challenge that we have is that I think we oftentimes are looking at this from a purely kind of research perspective, but what, how might we look at the data differently if we're thinking about it as a storytelling mechanism? And what are the stories that are being told, not necessarily just about violence, but about community life, about engagement, about what it means to be a young person in 2023. Hello and welcome to Informatics in the Round, the podcast that's designed to have every kitchen table in the country talking about informatics and the way they can understand it. I'm Kevin Johnson, a physician and informatics researcher at the University of Pennsylvania at KB Johnson MD on Twitter. And I'm Harris Bland, Senior Project Manager in Biomedical Informatics and PhD Candidate in Genetics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And you can find me at htbland21 on Twitter. So today's episode, we had a very special guest, Dr. Desmond Patton, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Desmond has published groundbreaking research on the linkage between grief and aggressive behavior on social media platforms. And now his research focuses on the topics such as AI, social media, machine learning, empathy, and race with the goal to create unbiased and culturally conscious algorithms. And he talked about that quite a bit. Now he is director for the research initiative known as Safe Lab at the Annenberg School for Communication, which we'll hear more about in this episode. We are also excited to have back with us our friends Alyssa and Hannah, the musical duo known as the Daily Fair. We've had them on previous podcast episodes, and we're so excited that they've uh, decided to join us for this conversation. You don't sound that excited. I mean, I am thrilled. Okay, that's better. That's better. Yeah, they're pretty awesome. They're pretty awesome. So anyway, I've been wanting to record this episode for a long time, primarily because as Harris and I have worked so hard this year to focus on issues of equity and informatics, we've taken very much a PhD scientist or physician perspective. And Desmond is a social worker, and he makes that very clear during the episode. What do you think? You know, I think it's really interesting to consider the different medias um, that we've got and between TikTok and Twitter and how those data can be utilized. But the way that Desmond has used them is a way that I don't think we often consider in healthcare. Um, and we keep social media often very separate from things like EHR data and such for a lot of good reasons. But I think it, what he talks about is really important to people's health. Yep. Okay. That's enough of a spoiler. Let's get into the episode and then we can talk just for a second at the end to tell people what to do next. Let's get into it. All right. All right, everybody. Welcome to Informatics in the Round. I think you all know this is the podcast that's designed for my mother to understand what the heck it is I do. And we've got some guests here who are really going to excite mom. So for that, <laughs> for that reason alone, we need to get started. But let me first make sure we introduce everybody here. First, on the order in which I see people on the screen, there's Hannah Smith. Hannah, do you want to say hi and tell people who you are? Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Hannah Smith, and I... Uh, I'm in a Americana soul duo called the Daily Fair. Okay, Liz, formerly known as Alyssa. <laughs> I still go by Alyssa. It's just easier to say Liz in some contexts. So um, that's who I am. I'm part of the Daily Fair, and I'm actually uh, working, doing the home repair and maintenance thing today. So awesome! You're like a, a task rabbit. Yeah, <laughs> I work for a handy. I work for a handyman and repair company, re, uh, repair and remodeling company. Well, yeah. I I really might need to get you up to Philadelphia. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'll send you a card. All right. Okay, Harris, who are you? Hey, I'm Harris Bland, senior project manager uh, with biomedical informatics at Vanderbilt. And everybody, of course, knows Harris as the co-host. And as, as Liz and Hannah mentioned, they are the Daily Fair songwriting duo. You'll hear a little bit more about them near the end. We have an incredible special guest today who is with me at the University of Pennsylvania and has had really a meteoric rise in his career that I promised him I will not embarrass him by sharing with you, except to say that he is a recently inducted member of the National Academy of Medicine and is a presidential 
scholar. Is that what the right title is, Desmond? It's one of them. (laughs) (laughs) And and really suffers from amazing modesty. (laughs) Desmond Upton Patton. So Desmond, please say hello and tell people who you are. Hi, everyone. I'm Desmond Patton. I'm the Schwartz University professor at UPenn. I have appointments in social policy, communications, and psychiatry. I direct a lab called the Safe Lab and a new center called the Penn Center for Inclusive Innovation in Tech. Um, and just to go back to Dr. Jones's point, I am a, um, a part of the inaugural cohort for the Obama Foundation USA Leaders Program. That's right. It is Obama and not Biden. <laughs> Sorry about that. And I was just, I was just there uh, last week in Chicago with the Democracy Forum. So, yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, you know, I just made the connection, obviously, with you in Chicago as well and Obama. Yep. So, yeah. So, are you on a first name basis with them now, like Brock and Michelle? He calls him. He calls him Bo. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish. I wish. Well, he's probably listening to this. So this yeah, is, absolutely. we should probably all say, first of all, President Obama, I love you. We miss <laughs> you and Michelle. I don't know how you wake up every morning. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Anybody else? Any other comments anybody wants to make? A couple of weeks ago, I just finished reading or listening to um, Barack Obama's uh, book, Promised Land. It's a long audio book if you listen to it, but it is so good. And he talks about the uh peace talks in israel and palestine and during his time there and what an interesting time to read that right before all the things that are happening now that's all i'll say so Liz, what do you want to say to president obama i guess thanks for the work that you did and now that i'm older and wiser i would have uh lots of other questions about things back when i was (laughs) when you were president so yeah i'm asking them now all right, that's good. I'm really scared. I thought you were going to say, now that I'm older and wiser, I would have voted for you. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I, no. I generally, I, yeah, there was, I, it was, it was early college days for me when all that was going on. Yeah, I understand. I understand. So what's really exciting about this year for us, and this is one of our last episodes, is that we've been focusing on informatics and equity. And we've looked at informatics from a very typical physician perspective, which is incredibly myopic. But today, we have an opportunity to do some to some corrective measures there. Desmond, who, by the way, we go by first names. I'm Kevin. Desmond is a fellow Penn Integrates Knowledge professor who I had a chance to meet a couple of years ago. And our, just full disclosure, his husband and my husband and I have gone out to dinner on a couple of occasions and really have enjoyed each other's company. So we know each other personally as well as professionally. But the brother is doing some of the coolest work I've ever heard about in my entire life. And I thought I would start off this conversation, since you mentioned the Safe Lab, about asking about your journey to the Safe Lab, which has been going on for quite some time. So tell yeah. us about that journey. For sure. I think one thing it's important to understand for the audience is that I'm a social worker. And so while we're talking about, you know, innovative research and research labs, my starting place is as a researcher and as a gun violence social worker. I started off in Chicago uh, during my PhD program and I was hanging out uh, with young people in the city um, trying to understand how a group of young black boys and men were living in one of the most violent neighborhoods in Chicago, but also maintaining 4.0, 3.9 GPAs. They were killing it. Yeah. And one of the one of the things that kept coming up in our conversations was Twitter. This is back around 2010, 2011. And these mm-hmm. young people were super savvy with how they were using Twitter. Twitter wasn't just a place to like connect and engage. That was a critical piece of it. But it was also a place where these young folks were navigating safety. They were able to identify safe and unsafe locations based on how people were posting on Twitter. And it was also kind of a news channel for how they would understand community violence in the neighborhood as well. And so um, after finishing my PhD, went to went, uh, back to University of Michigan as an assistant professor and wanted to study, you know, this kind of um, burgeoning area of research around social media and gun violence, went to the literature and there was nothing there. So I created the Safe Lab um, as a space to study these intersections of 
social media, gun violence, and then later on, the use of AI as a tool for studying this topic as well. So it started back in 2012. Now, what does safe lab mean? What's it, what is that? Do those letters stand for something? It used to. I probably don't know what it means anymore. I think it was like, <laughs> like, like safe, aggressive, free environments or something like that. But now it's just safe. We want to create safe environments. Yeah. Well, what I love about the safe lab is that you've literally brought a group of people together who nobody would ever expect are going to be understanding and using information in the way that you've used it. Tell us a little bit about that. And, and I think then people, listeners will understand why this is an informatics conversation. Yeah. So, you know, I'm truly a social worker in that I, I really like diverse communities. And so the lab is filled with social workers and psychologists and psychiatrists and community members and engineers, anyone in between who's interested in this particular topic area. And we use a variety of methods to understand this phenomenon. So I trained, uh, I have a PhD in social welfare policy from U of Chicago, and I was a qualitative person. And so um, a lot of the initial work was really just talking with young people, hanging out in communities to understand um, how they make meaning of social media, how they use social media, and the relationship between social media and gun violence in particular, like their engagement. And then once I got to Michigan, I started to hang out at the iSchool because there are folks doing really cool work in natural language processing and computer vision and using hotspots to identify kind of conversations that were bubbling up in particular locales. And so I started to really think about the, the utility of using artificial intelligence to identify core concepts on social media, like aggression or grief and loss to help us at this time predict violence. Now, again, I'm very green and young and excited to use these tools and wanting to get tenure. And so my initial, <laughs> you know, my initial foray into this was not one that I would um, recommend today, but it, you know, initially I thought, oh, maybe this can help us predict violence. Maybe we can use social media to predict the next killer. Right. And I, I no longer think that. Um, we can talk more about that, but we're not doing that anymore. Oh, no. I, now you're, <laughs> now I'm intrigued. What I'm thinking is, one, how has it changed with uh, social media? I mean, Elon Musk has, you know, imploded Twitter. Um, but what changed your mind on using it for that? You know, young people, um, it's super important uh, to be embedded in community when doing a research that has direct impact on communities. Yep. And I think the first thing that I um, recognize is that I didn't know what young people were saying online. And this was a kind of a humbling and embarrassing moment for me. I uh, identify as Black. I, uh, I spent a lot of my time in Black communities, and I thought I understood African-American English, and I thought I understood social media language, and I absolutely do not. And this is what I was looking at on Twitter in particular. And what became very clear is that the artificial intelligence tools, these gold standard tools that we were using, could not interpret the language of young people. And in particular, because the language was hyper-local. And so oftentimes, young people might be using a mix of African-American English um, and social media speak, but it's also kind of connected to the local community. And so a street name or an institution would be used or would have different meaning based on that hyper-local communication. And so the tools kept messing up. And I would have to have these really awkward and weird conversations with my computer science colleagues who wouldn't get it. So, you know, the weirdest conversation, the most uncomfortable conversation that I ever had was around the use of the N-word because the NOP tool would automatically assume that any phrase associated with the N-word would be deemed an aggressive phrase or be labeled um, aggression. So I had to tell my white colleagues, not necessarily. The N-word is not necessarily an aggressive term within the black community. So they never listen, they never listen to Chris Rock? <laughs> <laughs> Among other things, right? And yeah. this was, but it, it wasn't, again, it wasn't an intentional slide. It's just if you're not from the community, you just don't know. Yeah. And so this yeah. is why in my lab, kind of a, a, a critical tool that has really transformed how I think about this work is by working directly with young people, not as participants, but as domain experts. And so we would hire young people 
from the communities from which the Twitter data came from to help us not only translate and interpret the meaning of these posts that we were seeing, but to also give us feedback on the ethics of doing this work as well. That reminds me a little bit of this TikTok I saw where someone was typing something up and they used the word gunman. And Microsoft said, you should use shooter to be a little more inclusive. (laughs) 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 And I thought like, hey, way to go, Microsoft. Not quite, but (laughs) we're we're getting there. Well, Hannah is cracking up over there. I, I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's remarkable how much one we're in media just in general throughout the day that now it's like so PC in, in every area that that's like the autocorrects and things like that. Like I think all of us can attest to autocorrect, not getting it right 90% of the time. <laughs> so um, anyway, it, it, it's a really intriguing conversation. I wonder if it uh, does it matter on what forum or what social media type that you utilize, because, you know, I I mentioned the thing about Twitter imploding, but uh, I see this type of information uh, that you're mentioning happen a lot here in Nashville on Facebook. You know, we've got these neighborhood groups on Facebook where, you know, if if something's going on, someone will say, oh, there was a shooting down the road. Um, You know, you might want to be careful because there's cops everywhere and people utilize it, that forum, could you translate that over into TikTok or, uh, or other types of social media? Or does it really depend on where, where the youth, where the kids are going? I think it depends on the features of the platform and the ways in which the platforms are used, right? And so I think we're talking about different types of experiences. So on TikTok, you know, it's, video based. And so um, a lot of what you will see is, for example, in the work that I do, you may see a young person who will get on TikTok and film themselves in a rival group or gang's territory and kind of make fun of that. And then you will then have the comments that are responding um, versus, you know, on Facebook or Twitter back in the day, you would have a direct post that would then probably have six or 700 comments related to it. But, you know, I think the universal thing that is most complicated across platforms is of a challenge with interpretation, right? And what worldviews or frameworks are we bringing in to the space in order to make meaning of what we're seeing. So for example, I have a paper where I talk about the challenges of interpreting guns on social media, where, you know, if there were a group of young black boys on a corner who were um, holding a rifle and just kind of smiling and holding a rifle, that image may be interpreted vastly different from a group of the same age white young men who are in a rural area holding the same type of gun. We're not going to look at those pictures in the same way. That's so, you know, that's fascinating to me because, you know, what you talk about is that you're a digital qualitative researcher. You started out with text. You You quickly recognized emojis. I have to confess that when I think of emojis, there's a bag of emojis and I just pick a whole bunch of them. But it turns out that the sequence of emojis is critical and I never knew about that. And now you're adding another layer, which from a machine learning perspective, I know is really hard, which is the context. So where they chose to do that picture is intentionally or unintentionally sending a message, huh, Desmond? Absolutely. Uh, You know, one of the biggest eye-opening moments is around the intentionality and also just the brilliance of young people to use emoji, to use the features um, afforded to them on social media platforms to tell stories. And so a part of the, the challenge that we have is that I think we oftentimes are looking at this from a purely kind of research perspective, but what, how might we look at the data differently if we're thinking about it as a storytelling mechanism? And what are the stories that are being told, not necessarily just about violence, but about community life, about engagement, about what it means to be a young person in 2023. And so I think, you know, weaving in kind of the qualitative interpretive element within how we um, annotate and label data has become something that I do a lot, but it's it's also not anything that I trained in or expected (laughs) to do as a researcher. Well, but, you know, I I see Hannah on the screen here. I know Liz is around too. Songwriters have dealt with this for a long time, right? Songwriters take a lyric, take a key, take 
the instrumentation and they add these layers, I think also typically very intentionally. Um, does this surprise you, Hannah and Liz, that you know maybe a lot of us are never really using all of what a designer of a social media message is either intending to convey or maybe we're, we're misinterpreting what we see? As someone who was on Twitter from very early on and then now has seen that sort of lose its usability and it's what was great about it. And also having been a latecomer to TikTok and a lot of my content on TikTok that I see is home repair stuff, but it's also a lot of social justice and social commentary type things. And one of the things that I see a lot is someone looking a particular way and having something that they're saying or doing, but then the text on the screen, they'll actually have be completely different than what they're saying or doing because the algorithm based on whoever they are, won't go to the right people with what they want to say. Wow. But a lot of the creators that I follow will, will sort of try to outplay the AI <laughs> and the, um, you know, like the, the captions that they generate, like they won't, they won't type out the word gun. They'll put an asterisk. They'll put a symbol. They'll say a word that's not, they'll say shooty thingy or, you know, something where it's like, they're making it clear that if they don't use this language, you won't be able to probably see what they're saying or you'll be less likely to find the things that they're wanting to post right. they want people to see. And I guess that's when all of that's affecting your work too, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I've kind of become known. People think that I am trying to decipher the speech of young Black folks in order to predict violence. And I would say that's that's exactly where we started. And what we saw in those earlier days is that well, I think there was two things happening. I think number one is just like folks using hyperlocal language and you just don't get it, right? And so it's not intended for you. It wasn't designed for you. It doesn't mean someone is trying to develop a new language. It's just you don't get the language. Now, I think we're seeing a lot more sophistication with intervening of filters and moderation on tech platforms that is taking or shutting a lot of a, a communication down. And so, you know, folks will speak about, you know, um, heightened conversations in very different ways that so they won't use the actual word. They will use a fruit or a color in order to represent a wow. word to get around the algorithm that is filtering out language that is thought to be problematic. And I think it's quite brilliant. Um, and it's causing a lot of challenges for content moderation. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I guess that's the goal. Yep. But it's, it's uh, what you're saying. It, it reminds me really a lot of ministry. I used to be a music minister um, in my old life and uh, it, I can recall going, you know, I would go to a different state and maybe uh, be a guest minister for something. And I might play a song that I would play it completely differently mm, than what mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. congregation was used to. And they would come away saying, like, I either really like that version that you did or didn't really like that version. But it was interesting how, you know, they just might be a state or two away, but they have a whole different version of a song that has sheet music and everything connected mm -hmm. to it. It's just that the interpretation that I was using was very different than what uh, they were used to and, and acclimated. So it sounds like it's, uh, you said it's very localized, but it does also sound kind of tribal in a way that uh, we're very connected with the language and uh, the way we use that type of language as a part of our community. Wow. Completely agree with that. For example, I would do a workshop around drill music and gun violence in Brixton in the UK. And, you know, the young people in Brixton would understand about 75% of the things I was saying because of the shared kind of love of drill music and because of the, the impact that hip hop and drill music have had globally. And it's something that I didn't understand I, I was thinking oh you know they would they wouldn't yep. get it they would they would miss it but there's a lot of connection there because of the shared kind of engagement around hip-hop yeah so uh before i go down this rabbit hole do y'all know who keith lee is no okay i'm gonna just give a broad understanding of keith lee and it, it, you'll get understand when i get to the, towards the end 
Keith Lee is this like just regular guy who started, he's in Las Vegas and he started reviewing restaurants in the Vegas area and rating them. And he's gotten millions of followers because he sits in his car and he says, you know, I'm going to rate this restaurant one through 10. It's usually a business that doesn't have a lot of uh, walking traffic and, and um, customers. But as soon as he rates it, it blows up and wow. they'll, they're, I mean, their restaurants will go from like one or two people. He'll say the food's amazing. you got to be there. And then you can't get in the door because of his reviews. Mm-hmm. So he's been doing this nationwide tour with his family on different cities. Well, last week he went to Atlanta and Atlanta, you know, people have been sending him messages. When you come to Atlanta, try these restaurants. So he's, he goes to two restaurants in particular that he had kept getting messages about. And when he would sit in his car, his start his video, he would say, you can see that I don't have any food. And he would talk about how, unfortunately, the customer service, you know, just wasn't par. Ooh. And so he could never get in. And these two restaurants in particular in Atlanta are very well known for having poor customer service and having really odd rules. Like you can't do reservations or you can't do carry out all these different things. I bring this up because last week when he was doing this tour, the Atlanta folks that were watching these videos, you had a group who were saying, that's right, Keith Lee came to town and you screwed up. You should have been ready when you saw that Keith Lee was in town. But then you had this other group who got so mad that Keith Lee didn't just love everything Atlanta mm. that started sending his mm-hmm. family death threats. Wow. Saying, come back to Atlanta and see what happens. Ooh. And so he had to send a video out saying, if this is how every city is going to be based off of my reviews, we're just going to stop touring because I'm not going to put my family in danger. But it was so interesting. I lived in Atlanta for a while, so I know the weird restaurant Atlanta rolls a little bit. And it was so interesting to watch someone who's very well loved on social media get all of this hate for his honest human opinions about food. <laughs> so I, I just uh, I see that tribalism in that and think about how, you know, a lot of people who are not from Atlanta or have lived in Atlanta we're watching this thing like, oh, God, Atlanta is crazy. People are, <laughs> are given death threats over a food commentator. So this is the Real Housewives of Atlanta connection because he went to Candy Burris' restaurant. Now now, I'm now it all comes together. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, look, but it's interesting that now you under like there's a connection to it. Mm-hmm. You understand. And it's it's just yeah. such an interesting way. The tribalism, these connections with a social media platform and how so I, I wonder though because i remember watching these videos and feeling heated even though i wasn't a part of the situation at all i felt very connected because i lived in atlanta knew what these things were knew these places so how are you seeing this having implications on people's health as you watch some of these interactions occur yeah so i think a number of things i'm thinking number one um what we fail to realize is that Social media is life. And I think for a lot of us, you know, who did not grow up with social media, it can feel like this distinct virtual thing that some people do. It's performance. It's performance. But I think what we're beginning to understand is that, you know, social media is an integrated aspect of daily life. Even if you're not someone who is constantly on social media, you know someone that is. You have a cousin, a child, a friend that is always narrating their lives on social media, and it affects how we see the world, how we interpret the world, the kind of experiences we we want to have. Um, there's a lot of um, connection with the, the performative element that I think that I wonder if we're getting that wrong. I think we we see a lot of folks who are presenting, you know, the best parts of themselves. And oftentimes we think of that as being performative or not true. But I wonder if we should think about that as being an aspirational self Hmm. and if we can leverage some of that for helping people to live better and happier lives, right? So maybe like you only see my puppy every single day, but I'm really struggling with anxiety. How might I be able to bring elements of that into conversations with my therapist or think about how I talk about my life in more complicated ways where I can talk about my my puppy that I love, but also talk about that I have a lot of work and I'm overwhelmed and I have a lot of anxiety going on as well. So I think that we kind of have missed an opportunity to fully integrate social media into the practice of living happier and more joyful lives. 
But then I think we also come up to the the problem that we, we've been talking about is the algorithm messes that up. It's like as soon as you start to try, you either get bombarded <laughs> with the one negative thing you looked yep. up about anxiety <laughs> or you get yeah. like a plethora of it all just looking in one direction. Mm-hmm. You lose the scope of understanding. And I know in my experience, I'm seeing more division. Like it's harder to understand where people are coming from because we're all getting stuck in this one track mind like, I think we can all remember, I don't know, a handful of years ago and social media just about killed everybody. And I say that like broadly, just how, how many arguments I think it's safe to say everybody basically got into or just stood back and watched happen, other people go through. And it's like, how do we navigate that where we're like trying to be present in our communities? Like we live in a very interesting part of town. It's like very split but still very integrated, low income, but it's gentrifying and it's confusing, but there's no sidewalks. And so everybody, it's, it's just, it's quite a mess. So how do you navigate listening and being present when you hear so many voices and you don't really know which mm-hmm. way is up and down? Mm-hmm. You know, Desmond, the work you're doing, just listening to Hannah and let's talk about this before and Harris, the work is so requiring an understanding of a hyperlocal environment. How do you as an outsider, even with a safe lab, get enough of a handle on what it is you should be seeing or experiencing or helping others to understand, um, given that you are an, actually an outsider to that group? You know, I think, again, I keep talking about being a social worker, but I think it is foundation to how I see the world. And for me, it's about reflexivity, understanding my positionality, my worldview, and also understanding where my expertise ends. And I think, oh, you know, yeah. as, as you know, we're trained as, you know, experts and we're supposed to know a lot and be able to answer lots of questions. And I think in studying black children on social media, and in particular one person, Jakira Barnes from Chicago, who I've studied almost for a decade, she taught me in death that I need to shut up and listen and ask questions, yes, and and also push back against kind of traditional methods of understanding. And so, you know, when I partner with computer scientists, the goal is always accuracy. We want the most accurate uh, algorithmic system that can detect whatever you're trying to detect. And one of the things that, that listening to young people has taught me is that maybe we don't want an algorithmic system that is super accurate at detecting African-American English because we also live in a world that's racist and biased. And so what would it mean to have a tool that is always looking at Black English? Um, Will it help us to prevent violence or, you know, deal with mental health challenges or other health challenges? Or will it create another form of state violence through surveillance? And so I think I have started to use these tools in a very different way. I'm no longer interested in having the most accurate systems. I'm no longer interested in binary classifications that are very reductionist and kind of put human behavior in little small boxes. I'm really interested in using it from more of an anthropological lens. What does it tell us about society? What does it tell us about narratives and how people are sharing their lives online, can it be used as a diagnostic tool? Can it help us to understand root causes of violence through storytelling? And so, yeah, I think my whole positionality around this work has shifted over the last decade by being in the middle of it and kind of um, sitting in the mess of it, if you will. Well, I have to ask you a question as a follow-on to that. You know, misinformation is becoming a huge problem right now. And when, when, you were, when we were talking about all of the ways in which hyperlocal slash tribal communication may occur, it strikes me that either we who are trying to create the right information need to have a significantly more nuanced view of this hyperlocal phenomenon so that we can actually tailor, or at the very least, we need some degree of tools like the type you're developing to take information that's being sent through those communities and detect where there is misinformation embedded within that. You know, like, I don't know that I would have mm-hmm. ever paid attention to the context. So if, as an example, if Dr. Fauci is giving a piece of information 
in front of a house in Southeast DC, I might have a, and see, I see people nodding. I might have a much better understanding that that's likely to be true Mm -hmm. versus I have that same piece of information with two flags on either side of me and a lovely blue and white and red background. So Mm -hmm. what's your take on the misinformation? Is there a way in which we can use some of what you're developing as a social worker and some of what you observe every day to help us find and combat it? I think this is why the human humans in the loop idea is really important, but not necessarily just as like a feedback loop. I think we really need to identify to really tap back into human intelligence. Um, as do, we, do we have any of that left? <laughs> <laughs> I Sorry. don't know. <laughs> but so, for example, I am so I'm a consultant at TikTok and I have an appointment at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and I'm working to try to figure out how we can work with influencers on TikTok that are talking about their mental health via their lived experience. And they're sharing the everyday stressors and their treatment and how they connect with social workers and psychologists and psychiatrists. And at times, some of the information that they share may not be trustworthy or completely accurate. It is a lived experience, and so we should honor that lived experience, but it may not map on to the type of treatment that you might need to receive. And so how might we partner with physicians at Children's Hospital to kind of bring in additional insight so that when you're getting that lived experience, you're also getting a companion conversation from a mental health expert so that you can have both and kind of make decisions and have more informed choice in space. And so I think that there's a way to kind of merge human beings with algorithmic systems uh, so that we're having more um, informed conversations. People are going to make sense of things how they do, but I I think we need more information that is is right uh, and that is informative and that is evidence-based. Have you seen any examples technically of how we would do this? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm looking. <laughs> yeah, I'm imagining it. I, can, I mean, I could see, I mean, I know it when I see it. And mm-hmm. I know exactly what you're talking about, which is, I mean, my favorite example of this, and I know that Hannah and Liz have examples of this as writers too. My favorite example is you see somebody who's 100 and 1,000 years old, you know, super, super old person. And people say, what's the secret mm-hmm. to long life? And they say, I eat nothing but Snickers bars every day. And then somebody else thinks, ooh, so that's it. <laughs> and it's like, no, that's not really it. But, but how, do you, how do you make that message effective? Or how do you acknowledge that lived experience and then provide that moment where it's almost like a little fact check that says, no, 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 actually Snickers bars generally are killing people. But there's something else this person is doing that they don't write. You know, I don't know how you do that. Well, I think a part of it is also stepping back, right, and thinking about the ways in which we design these systems to tell these stories, right? And I think a part of it is is that we're missing, you know, folks who can help us tell diverse and complicated stories. So like you're saying, I I don't want to harm the person that is sharing their lived experience. And we, we really have this, like, criminal justice element of how we treat information online that really bothers me. I think we can... We can, we can hold multiple truths. That person who's talking about the Snickers bar is also probably not telling you about how they relax after a long day or how they have a community of people that they're talking to yes, so that yes. they're not lonely. So you're not getting a lot of information. So I think that if we can pair it with, okay, I eat Snickers bars, but also maybe have someone bringing out and eliciting more context around, um, around the individual life, that, that would be more helpful. One thing that this is making me think about a little bit is that there's also this idea that, and I think it's it's normal to to get a little bit of FOMO. You don't want to miss out. So, you know, we'll hop on every social media platform to see what's going on. But I also think that there's this other side where there might be too much information that you you start sucking in all this information that really doesn't do anything to benefit. It was something that I saw probably on TikTok because that's where we all get our information (laughs) now. But it was uh, talking about how, you know, we really our brains aren't capable of taking all this information that we can get in. That's basically like fire hosed at our faces every day with social media. So I think it's also finding a way to balance that and 
bring in the stuff that's important, but not necessarily that needs to stay in your brain, tossing it out what you don't need to. Well, this is, I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is why we need more digital education. And what I'm seeing is that, you know, when we're in middle school, we all take social studies that teaches us or some element of what it means to be a citizen in the world. Not in Tennessee. We don't do that. <laughs> well, I, was, I, I, had a, I, I had a caveat. <laughs> I had a caveat. It's not universal, but supposedly we're all learning social studies. However, we are not learning about what it means to be a digital citizen, right? Mm. We don't, we're not reading the fine lines. We don't know what it means to communicate. We don't know what the rules are. We're all just kind of jumping in and doing whatever we want to, and then we get slapped on the wrist when someone has told us that we've done something wrong. And I think this if this continues, we're never going to get anywhere where folks really understand what it means to be a thoughtful, caring person online and so that we can all um, have more of a thriving experience. But I also think we need to really be thinking about the integration of our online and physical life as well. And I think right now, the way in which we move about the world, they're still treated somewhat separately, but we're seeing so much overlap that I, I think that we really need to figure out what the pathway for it is. But you've already kind of said that in some cases, people need that separation. They need to have their authentic self in a hyper-local environment where they can just be who they are, they can just be, it's not meant for me. And yet there's also this physical presence where, you know, I think about various poems, I'm sitting here trying to decide how much I wanna get into all this stuff, but The Little Man in Chiha Station is one of my favorite Ellison pieces that reminds us that there's an entire community watching you all the time. Mm -hmm. And even when you think you can be in your own little space, you kinda of can't be because there are people who are A, perhaps much more knowledgeable about you than a certain topic about which, as you were saying, Desmond, you might be acting like an expert, but you're really not, or be very, very much critical of everything you do and are using what you say to kind of further their own agenda for why they should be critical of people like you. So I think there is a challenge on bringing those two lives together, huh? I don't know. I think I think that if we tapped into more of our imagination and speculative design and using frameworks that are strength-based and open-minded, that perhaps there could be a way forward. I think right now, yes, I think the ways in which tech systems are designed, they are polarizing. They don't really allow for seamless integration. They benefit tech companies and make billionaires and trillionaires. And so, yeah, I think the way in which things are currently designed, we have lots of boundaries, but what would it mean for us? Like, you know, what if we use this podcast to unlock imaginations and really think about well, what would it mean for us to bring these lives together? Do we, A, do we want that? And B, if we do, then what would it take? And so I'm, I'm, I'm more hopeful. And I think young people, I think, have the answers to this because I think they're doing more of this on their own without the prompting. So Hannah and Liz, I've got a question for you as the Daily Fair. Do you think that your art imitates your life? Or do you think your art is the aspiration of your life? Or is it something else? In other words, how does it fit into this? Because there's two sets of musicians. In Nashville, there's songwriters who say, this is what I write. So nobody's going to buy it, but this is what's in my head. This is the thing that God has told me to put out into the world. And then there's this other group of people who are, this is what is selling. If I make it sound as close to Ed Sheeran as possible, even if I in no way believe it, I will make a million, billions of dollars, and then I can do the thing that I really want to do with my life. So how, where do you guys sit, and how does this relate to, to what he's talking about here with integrating lives? We were just talking about this yesterday. We really were. Um... I, knew, I knew you were. That's why I had you on. <laughs> uh, I was also, while you were talking, I was thinking, like, you're talking about the integration of other people's stories together and how musically like that can be a thing and what that looks like, you know, over social media and personally and as writers, like songwriters. And it reminded me of this nonprofit in town that uh, we've conversed with called Sing Me Your Story or Sing Me a Story. And it's, yes. yeah, and it, you, we as writers would meet with a kid. Oh my God. This is so great. Yeah, we would meet with a kid and they would tell us their hard story. 
And then us together with the kid would write their story for them, which is a really interesting kind of mismatch of I'll never get your story completely right, which I feel like is kind of what this conversation is. I'll, I'll, my lived experience is not the same as yours. So I'm going to need your perspective to inform me right. on, on how to see you more clearly in a lot of that. But to Desmond's point, it's very affirming, right? I mean, the whole idea that you're not judging, you're not censoring, you are contextualizing and yeah. turning it into something that people, because I've heard some of these songs and they're just like, oh my God, that's just incredible. No, I think that's kind of kind of the gist of it is like as as a writer, yes, I pull from my own experience, but often it's watching other people's lives unfold before me and my perception of what they're going through, maybe to help them get through it. But it's definitely been a coping mechanism for me to process my own life, which in turn has been very interesting to watch it become like these songs take on a whole new life for other people and hear what they think the song is about when we don't talk about the context. Oh, no, I was just going to say that songwriting or music is that really early form of communication where even if you can't speak the same language, you could find a way to communicate with someone who was completely of a different life than you were. So uh, I think Rhiannon Giddens I can't remember who she partnered with, but she's a she's a, a banjo player and a historian. And but she did a project with with some other artists, and it was kind of going and delving into the history of certain styles of music. And you can't pinpoint what country or what you know. You can't pinpoint one point of origin for any of these styles because all these people at some point were on some sort of vessel together, going somewhere. And so you don't know for sure who started that story or who started that song or whatever. So I think that's mm. when it comes mm. to songwriting, I think that's how it needs to remain. Otherwise you're not writing music. You're, you can make it, you can make money doing writing songs that people enjoy, but if you're not giving something back at the same time, I don't think it will sustain itself. That's so much. That's so important. That's a lot like the AIDS quilt, you know, where different people put their, lived experience in that little, in their little panel that all became the lived experience of people suffering with HIV and AIDS and families yeah. who had it. Yeah. It's a really important, it's a, it's a great observation to make that societally part of the human condition is only reflected in what we're seeing. And some of it actually may be placed in other places where we can't see it that are in the right, in a public's eye, but not the public's eye. Mm -hmm. So Desmond, I want to ask you a question about that. There must be, when you, you kind of made light about the fact that you did have an aspiration that this could do some interesting surveillance type work, but that society might have nefarious plans for where that would go. I'm curious about, you know, as again, as a social worker, what other biases you've run into that have actually changed the way that you can imagine using technology for good. Because you're one of the few people I've thought about who's come up with something that said, you know, nobody's thinking about using technology this way and I can, and now you're saying, but I'm not going to. So, mm -hmm. so what mm -hmm. else have you run into? Well, you know, I have been on my own journey to unravel survival narratives that impact how I see people and in particular, people that look like me. And one of the biggest realizations is, so I'm from North Carolina, I'm a gay black man, and and grew up in an environment where it was a survival technique for me to imbibe supremacist and toxic ideologies about other black people in order to see something in myself to keep moving. And that continued as a graduate student and as a professor, because I was also trained in injury science and sociology, where we were told to look at Black communities from a deficit lens, where we were theorized the experiences of Black people through a pathological framework. And then I would look at news and media and be consumed by titles and subject lines and stories about Black people that really reduced us to almost nothing. 
And so the realization came when I'm looking at a Black girl and trying to make sense of their life on Twitter. And what I think, one of the things that I think we've underestimated about social media is its ability to show us the multiplicity of selves that we have. And so when I was looking at Jakaira and the subject line said, gun-toting gang girl of Chicago has killed up to 20 people. And then I'm looking at her Twitter and she's saying, my story has never been told. The pain is unbearable. And then just like, just reveling in grief year after year after year, I could no longer hold these supremacist and toxic ideas about people that look like me. And so that bias came through really hard and was painful for me to have to be in touch with that. But I think was also very healing because it allowed me to grow. It allowed me to see myself in Jakaira. So Jakaira was no longer this entity that I'm observing and looking at, but Jakaira could be my sister. Jakaira could be my cousin. Jakaira could be my daughter. And that changes the research questions that you ask, how you see the world, how you disseminate your research. And so I think, you know, really doubling down on reflexivity as a tool, as a muscle to to wrestle with your own bias. And the reality is that we all have bias. Yes, yes. But the challenges have been the kind of DEI trainings that have been available haven't necessarily spoke to my bias as a Black person. They're usually geared towards white people. And so I've had to really think about what does it mean to be Black and gay and to have bias? And what tools do I need in order to wrestle and to think through and to reimagine the world as well. Wow. Preach. Says the preacher. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's really, I mean, just personally, you know, subject, you know, maybe we should have a drink and talk about this some more because (laughs) it is true. I will never talk about the fact that there are places, and Desmond knows this, there are places in the city I don't want to live because I just don't fit in, but also because I don't feel comfortable. A lot of my not feeling comfortable has nothing to do with an external perception. It has to do with my internalized perception of where I fit in better and where I'm the most comfortable. Mm. Other people don't feel that way. And in fact, one of the things people have said to me multiple times is you need to get your butt over to Africa, (laughs) where once you have actually seen the other group of people that you, your country has sort of whitewashed away from you you may actually come back and see a complete, with a different lens, the people in these different communities. And, you know, I hold out as an informatics person that there is some way that we can use technology to maybe break through this. But what I'm hearing you say is maybe not. I think that there are lots of possibilities, but I, I think that technology is one tool. And for me, it was useful because had I not been peering into the life of Jakaira Barnes using artificial intelligence and social media, I'm not sure. I probably would have got to this at some point, but I don't know when or how. And so I'm grateful for this opportunity because it, it forced me to reckon with text and language and the challenges of using these tools and how they spit back bias um, has become a really important a reflective tool for me. But I think the reality is that this is also ongoing work that technology cannot solve. I constantly have to consider my bias. This is not something that just goes away. It has, it was a survival for me to live, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. And so this is an ongoing journey for me. But I think being able to talk about it and be vulnerable, be able to use tools to help you see and understand and interpret your bias, I think, I think the integration of it can be helpful as we all go about our individual and community-based journeys. Yeah, I think it always ends up being in the eye of the beholder at, at some point or, or your heart, like you're open to looking at your own bias, you know, but the person who isn't, who mm-hmm. is very much, you know, in their own bias and never going to take a look at that, they're going to use social media the way, you know, uh, as a troll technique or as a place that they can have hostility. I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's just like any other tool. I'm sure before newspapers did the same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it can be a social media can be a propaganda machine. Um, so it really, at the end of the day, I think it's useful, but it probably does depend on just uh, someone's willingness and, mm-hmm. and how they're going to utilize it. Harris, I completely agree. I think 
one of the things that really enlightened me in this conversation is that there are these internal biases. We always rely on art and we always rely on music historically to help us see those things. So the question I have for Hannah and Liz who are here is I know a lot of your work reflects your internal struggles and the biases and the emotions of people around you. What's your thought about this? Is, is it a part of your role as songwriters? And by the way, are you doing anything right now that you can tell us about that's in that space of helping people to sort of address the world we're in right now, the human condition, et cetera? It's a lot of questions all wrapped into one place. There. I know. <laughs> Just take, take any one of them that you want. <laughs> okay, I'll make it one. What are you working on right now and how does it help us in this crazy world? At the moment, we've we've actually taken kind of a year hiatus to kind of figure out next steps because like we've been writing and playing shows periodically, but we're working on figuring out um, touring to the UK and I just got back and oh. it's a, it's that thing though. It's like, it's a different culture. How is our music going to land over there? So it's definitely something we've full stop backed up a little bit to decide how to move forward um, with some of this stuff um, and how to tell our stories in completely different cultures and places all around the world and uh, what that might look like. And with that, like, we've both gone through a lot of very big life changes in the last year, a couple of years, and you as an artist or, you know, as a creator or whatever, anybody who has gone through some major life event, it's really difficult to take time to step back and actually grow into that moment sometimes. And when you're trying to create something out of a moment like that, which is what we normally would do, like if the processing of that moment it's too close. It's it's you have to, you have to give it time to sort of sit and settle into you as a person, and then at least I, I'll say that for myself. I don't I can't just whip a song out there because something happened to me 15 minutes ago or six months ago or whatever. Like there's a few songs that took years to write that we you know I think there's one song on that record maybe we talked about it before that our most recent full length that was 10 years <laughs> from when we first wrote it to when we actually released it. Which song was that? I'd like to include it. The Tides. Yeah. Oh, I don't think we've played that. I'd love to put that on. May I include it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's a song that we wrote very early on in our friendship. And it didn't make sense until 12 years later or whatever, however <laughs> long the time frame was. Because we were missing pieces of why it was a story we should be telling. They hadn't happened yet, or we didn't understand it yet, or. And I think that's also something is you you hit a point where you go, "Am I willing to tell this story now?" That's where we landed. Mm-hmm. Well, speak speaking from the perspective of a person who loves music and have heard a lot of the stuff you guys have produced, I certainly feel like the UK audience is going to find you. Meaning, the people who were there who really appreciate the layers, as we were just describing, the context, the words, the sound, they're going to be in that room and they're going to find you. And everybody yeah. also will appreciate the piece they appreciate, you know? Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. Thank you. Sure. Harris, any final words? I was just thinking about what Liz was just saying and, you know, taking that long uh, process to write a song and develop that work with all those different layers. One of the things as a parent that I've had to try to work with Bradley is sitting with the feeling. And, you know, when something feels yucky, like it, you don't want to sit with it. You don't want to, you just want to kind of process it and move on. But he and I have been, uh, and Crystal have been talking about sitting with feelings and actually feeling them, you know, and sometimes that takes a decade and sometimes it takes, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes to, to feel something and understand what it is that you're feeling to be able to even process it. And I think that that's one of the things that social media sometimes doesn't allow us to do because we're so quick to be reactionary. But I think that uh, it's one thing on Facebook that's interesting is those um, 
memories that pop up uh, from, you know, years back. Yes. It's interesting for me to go back and see things from a decade ago when I was on Facebook and, you know, wonder what was I thinking and feeling during that time or see something and be like, oh, why did I post that? You know, um, it's such a quick fix of serotonin or endorphins or whatever else that you you're able to just get something out to the universe where really sometimes the, the things that really mean something take a little bit more time. Well, this has been really eye-opening for me. And uh, I gather from the body language and the, both the laughing and the dialogue that it's been that way for everybody here. And I hope our, I hope our listeners get a lot out of this too. So Desmond and Harris and Hannah and Liz, thank you so much for this. And uh, look forward to hearing the tides and sharing that with the audience. So thanks, Thank you guys. so much for having us. Thanks. Yeah, it's good to see you all. So what I think was interesting about this episode is that Desmond had this whole concept that social media could be used for predictive um, analytics and being able to keep people safe uh, through all this different technology. But he's walked away from that saying, mm, maybe not. Well, it's like he it's like he had the keys to unlocking a door to help other people see things they don't see or understand things they don't understand in, in the socials. And right before he opened it, he realized, what happens when I open this door? That's what it felt like. Yeah. Um, you know, I recently saw an article about uh, Biden's executive order on different healthcare entities not being able to have t uh, targeted ads and targeted metrics uh, from their websites. And there's this big dilemma. Is this okay? Is it not? And I think we have to remember who controls our, our social media platforms. And really it's folks who are looking to monetize them. Yeah. And so we can utilize them in the right way, but at the end of the day, they're the ones that kind of are able to make the changes and, and adapt the social media into ways that we can't necessarily control. Right. I mean, we have to remember, as people always say, if you're not paying anything for something, then you are the form of payment. Yeah, And so yeah. it's really important to recognize that. And obviously, um, although Desmond can't speak, he's not here to say it for himself, clearly at least a little bit of this for him was being awakened by his community to some of what could go wrong as he continued to pursue this line of work. Yeah. One of the things that we didn't talk a lot about, um, but I did think of uh, several times, was that when we look at social media, we also have to remember there are very distinct generational differences yes. in the use of social media. And Desmond's looking at, you know, youth and and I would assume probably like the Gen A, um, Gen Z use of social media. The true digital native. Yeah. But that is very different than the Gen X or millennial or boomer um, use of social media. So. Oh, it's so true. I kind of felt really, really old while he was talking. Did you? <laughs> In I part because I am. You would. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd say that. <laughs> okay. That's sus, bro. There it is. Well, look, thanks for listening to this episode. To hear about new releases, find us on social media at info in the RND on Twitter, Instagram, threads, and TikTok, even TikTok, where he spends a lot of time. Yeah. And if you have any questions or ideas uh, and you want to hear anything else about new episodes, you message us on any of the platforms or email us at informaticsintheround at gmail.com. See you later. Goodbye.
Turn